You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. So how are you these days? Yeah, I'm fine, mate. Yeah, sound very good. Keep busy. Keep busy, aye. How are you keeping busy? Um, I do I do a fair bit of uh, sim work, casualty simulation work for companies that um, basically act, and act as a casualty for uh, like army exercises and such. Oh. You know, my, so basically use my amputation for its uh, for the best and yeah. get paid. So yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, it's good. No, that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I don't think there's actually met any American companies that do it. Um, North American Rescue is one that comes to mind. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No, I think so. No, no. So basically, we get we just get made up. We have a um, a silicon sleeve that'll go over um, a stump, and then it just gets battered a bit to make it look like it's just been blown up and stuff, and <laughs> loads of fake blood and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's quite shocking to see if you if uh, certainly some of the troops aren't ready for it. They're just like, whoa. Oh, I bet. Yeah, most <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Where do you live now? Uh, I stay in Colchester, and that's basically about uh, about fifty miles northeast of London. Okay, okay. Now, are you originally from that area, or are you from? No, I'm from Scotland, just outside Glasgow. Glasgow. But, uh, yeah, but Colchester was was a, where I was based before I got um, medical discharge from um, the army. Okay. So, I thought to stay here. Yeah. Yeah, lovely area. We actually went through that area. I want to say. Well, I used to do business over there in Scotland a lot in Edinburgh. And then mm-hmm. go up to Dundee quite often. But I went on a vacation here about three years ago with my family. And we circled all around, went back through uh, Edinburgh, up to St. Andrews. Of course, I had to play the golf course there. I was able to play the castle course. And it was brutal that day. Of course, typical Scotland weather. You know, it was rainy, misty. I was wearing khaki pants. And I happened to buy a pullover so that I could stay warm. And by the time I got done with the first nine holes, my pants were drenched. And as I came around the bend with my uh, son-in-law, the guy that was monitoring everything said, are you guys going to continue? And we're like, I don't know. You know, we're like drenched wet. And he goes, well, let me tell you, all the Scots arrived here and they all went home. So you're the only ones on the course. So (laughs) that made us feel better, at least. He said, if it's bad enough for Scots not to stay out here and play golf, it must be really bad. Yeah, exactly. Probably. Was it Scottish summertime as well? Was it July? Or it was May. Yeah, the first part, end of May, first part of June. Yeah, it was surprising uh, how much rain was there. Then we went up to the Highlands, stayed up in Fort William and that area, and then uh, came down to Glasgow, and then we went over to Ireland. It's a great place. I bet it does. Yeah, love it. You joined the army right out of school, or what age was it when you joined? Uh, yeah, I was I was eighteen when I joined initially. I started to. I started to apply when I was um, 17, but actually joined just after my uh, 18th birthday. A lot of guys end up joining 16, 17 years old, so you joined a little late then for some. Well, they'd, um, when I joined, they'd just finished stopping guys that were between 16 and 17 joining, and it wasn't until I joined that after about two or three years, they then said guys that were 16 could join, stuff like that. Oh, but really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't join until I was um, started to apply until I was seventeen. But okay. I mean, most of the guys I was in training with and that they were round about my age anyway. So okay, a couple of ones, but apart from that, yeah, most of the same age. What was your skill when you came in? Were you infantry? Yeah, I went infantry. Yeah. Okay. After infantry, did you go airborne or anything right away? Because you were. I joined a I joined a Scottish regiment, and then I heard somebody talking about the paras. 
and I heard that. I thought, oh, they're quite, they're quite fit, those guys. So I um, then applied to go to the parachute regiment and didn't realise what was uh, get myself in for with um, <laughs> the selection process and such and sure and then uh, obviously jumping out of aircraft and stuff so but yeah I was I was um I was glad I transferred anyway. Now were you serving at any time in the Scottish regiment with Colin McLaughlin? No, but I recognised them from um SES Hooters Wins program. Oh, sure, yeah. I messaged them because you've got friends and friends uh, well mutual friends sorry um on Facebook because um, I thought he looked like a guy that I was on um, selection with a few years ago, but turns out it wasn't. Um, but no, um, my, one of my friends, uh, she used to go out with um, the lad Foxy on that same program. Oh, yes. Yeah, we had him on yeah. a few weeks back. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Colin's been on as well. He's been on probably three times in total. One, he came on as kind of a guest host, and then two times we had him on right before he was getting ready to go to the boxing match that they were having here about a month ago uh, for right, charity. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about that. I know there's something going on because I know there's a, there's a Facebook group, I think it's the SES Boxing Team or something like that. I think yeah. it is. So tell us a little bit about your time in. How many years did you end up spending in? Um, just under just under 20 years. Oh, did you really? I didn't know that you spent that many years in. Yeah, I mean, I joined in, let's say, May, June uh, 1993. And then I got discharged in uh, December 2012. Okay. So a few months short of my 20 years. Yeah. Did you get any type of pension or anything with the 20 years? Or Yeah, yeah. I got a lump sum then. I got a, a monthly pension um, that I get, yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your time in the military. It was in Afghanistan? It was Afghanistan, yeah. Helmand Province in Afghan. Okay. So yeah, Helmand yeah, Province being where, of course, all the mines and everything are terrible in Helmand Province. Yeah, I mean, there's... Something like, I'm sure we get told, from the Russian occupation in the 80s, there's something like around 10 million mines or 30 million mines or something like that knocking about there. So that was obviously the big, that was a big worry amongst us going on going on the tour, as well as obviously having a, a good fight with the Taliban was obviously the mines. So were you guys headed out on a specific mission or a patrol at that time frame? The troops I had on top of the, uh, the hilltop, that was called, um, that hill was called, we nicknamed it Normandy. And there was another hill that had the main control point that was um, 800 metres east of ours. Um, that was nicknamed as Athens. So in Normandy, I had about five other soldiers from my anti-tank section, because we were um, anti-tank detachment armed with the, um, you know, the javelin missile system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we had a few guys that were um, uh, just there as extra, extra bodies for us. And Stuart Hale, he was actually a sniper. And he'd... Um, said to me in the morning of the, the 6th of September 2006 that he'd seen the Taliban uh, in Kajaki town, two and a half kilometres south of our location, manning an illegal vehicle checkpoint. And he could see, because he, he had a good night sight, and uh, he could definitely make, make out that things were getting passed from the people, the, the vehicles to the Taliban. And it, 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 was, it was definitely cash. It was getting swapped out and stuff like that. So we thought about the options because we had limited troops actually to send in. I mean, all the all the troops from three part of them were busy in all the outstations. It was they could we couldn't even change go from outstation to outstation because there was no free troops available to actually start um, that reliefing process. Um, so we chatted about should we try to call in an airstrike or um, artillery or mortars, but we knew with them that. 
there was too much chance of collateral damage because there was there was women and children knocking about in that area and stuff like that, and it wouldn't have been too great if um, that would have something would have happened to them. So sure, as I see, he measured it with his uh, his uh, viewfinder, and it was two and a half kilometres away. Um, his sniper rifle has got a, a lethal range up to uh, well, it's got a range up to seventeen hundred meters, and he measured the ridge line south of us, and that was seven hundred meters away. So it was a so it was eighteen hundred meters to the target. So he was quite happy for that range to actually put in a snipe. So a bit of confusion. I asked, I said to him, he need to go and clear it with Athens Hill with the main control point on. He thought. I said, I'd clear it, he said. So it was a bit of oh, miscommunication no. between us two. So I then, once we thought it had all cleared, I then said, right, grab a couple of bods and go and do your little task. I mean, it was only 700 metres away. I thought, what's the worst that could happen? Right. But um, so he grabbed a couple of the guys. One of the guys was a team medic. Another guy had a machine gun, a light machine gun. So off they went. When he was down in the wadi, 15 minutes later, he gave me a radio check to make sure we're still in communications. Everything was fine then. And then two minutes later, I heard a big, heard a big blast. Oh. And I mean, I knew, I knew that we'd had enough RPGs and mortars fired at us during that four months I was there, four or five months there, that I knew this was a different blast and I'd never heard a mine going off. So I thought, that is a mine, you know what I mean? I then grabbed three of the lads off my hill. We basically just grabbed our weapon and rifles and uh, made our way down there fast. I then got down to Stu and seen he was uh, missing his right leg, just about just above his ankle. So I then shouted back up to the top of our hill to then let them know that Athens, what the casualty, who the casualty was, and what damage had been done. As this was going on. Mark Wright grabbed a load of guys from um, his hill on Athens, including two two medics, and the rest were from his um, motor platoon, his motor section, and they made their way to, down to us. And I then kind of back briefed Mark as to, because um, he was a, another couple with us, I back briefed Mark Wright as to what was going on. He then asked for a helicopter with a winch, because that's basically what you need in these situations. And that pretty much got fucked off as such we didn't we just didn't didn't get that and i couldn't 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 we get ahead around what was going on now was that the special Uh, forces american special forces that were helping you at that time frame no no it wasn't no but um what what i later found out was our commanding officer stuart here um, stuart Stuart tootle colonel tootle he'd actually asked because he knew we didn't have winches but he asked the americans at kandahar if, if they could get black hawks or winches right but he said there was too much red tape in the way and it just there was so many obstructions for the actual for that to happen that it, it well it couldn't it couldn't happen there and then yeah so i then realized that right they're not sending in a winch and the where where stew was was um was basically at the, the bottom of a little mound and i knew that if they were going to come in by helicopter there's no way they could get down near him he'd need to bloom in get lifted up from another area so I then selected an area for the for the guys to clear a path to and carry Stu etc so nominated two guys that all seemed uh, that all seemed fine I then nominated got another selected another a second area just in case um the air force weren't happy with the first so that as I was getting done I then walked back to Stu Hill on what I thought was a cleared route and about 10 meters from Stu then I then initiated a 
anti-personnel mining. Oh my Basically gosh. got blown up. I got blown up and then landed my landed my ass. So I lifted my left leg to see what I'd done because I, I knew I knew straight away what I had done, but I'm just going to see what damage and I could see my um, my my foot was gone. It was gone roughly the same height as Stuart, so just above my ankle. I could see my top lace still attached to the residual limb. I then I didn't I then called for no one to no one to move because I that was then we realised that yeah at that point it's like freeze field, you know what I mean yeah yeah so I didn't want anyone else to move but Andy Barlow hugely lad he came running over to me so I just I was going out in my medical pouch anyway um, to get a tourniquet out and as he got near I just threw the tourniquet at him and he then started applying the tourniquet and as he was doing that although it genuinely didn't hurt. I knew it wouldn't be long till it did hurt, so I just got morphine out straight away and just stabbed myself my, my right leg, my good leg then. And then Mark Wright and um, Alex Craig, one of the medics, they came running over to me and um, Alex carried on my first aid and uh, Mark got all my details off me to then send it up to um, Athens for them to tell headquarters in, in Bastion, basically. Right. And it just kind of got worse. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happened after that? Because didn't we mm-hmm. didn't you end up losing another individual through this whole scenario? Well, shortly after that, Mark had the main radio up to Athens. So he was back briefing us as to what was going on, when the helicopter would be due. It was about 15 minutes after I stood, stood on it. Uh, we heard the, the whoosh of um, a Chinook, Chinook's rotor blades coming in. Right. And Mark was basically shouting into the radio to get that helicopter to fuck that is not what we want because we knew that something could come of that possibly and as that got nearer this actually landed like about 40 meters to our west which was actually which we found out later was actually in the in the minefield itself it landed and beckoned us <sighs> over so but Tug hartley medic who was dealing with Stu and alec craig with me they just made the, the cut sign like that. There's no way we can get them over. So again, took off a bit. Mark was um, had his shirt off and he was shielding me from the, the down blast. The Chinook was coming near us. And as it got down, it's got its back wheels down to us. That then, a third mine then got initiated. And so the, the down blast, the helicopter, that set off the third mine. Mark got blasted back by it. Got hideous oh injuries God. to his face, neck and chest and his arm. And I then received injuries to my remaining leg, and Alec Craig, the medic who was beside me, he he took he took a blast in his chest from that. So he because he was bent over you at that time frame, right? Is that part of the reason why? Is because he took the uh, the up blast coming at him from direct contact by kneeling over you to protect you from the rotor wash, or yeah, yeah, he was trying to protect me, shield me from the down blast. Right, the rotor wash, yeah. But the um the the mine was like just to my right-hand side, and it, the way it went off, Mark had his injuries off that, and that's when I received injuries to my right leg. So that helicopter then, that then flew off, unbeknownst to us, it landed like a mile away at the, the, the main helicopter landing site near the hilltops. <clears throat> we didn't know what was going on then because that was our means of escape gone. We would then get told that Blackhawks had been released from Kandahar for us, so... Obviously, I mean, Colonel Tuttle must have been shouting and screaming at them in Kandahar to give us some, because that Chinook basically just made matters worse. So 
we got two, so we then get told there would be two coming for us, and Mark told me that was, they'd be another hour before they get to us, so it was a bit like... How many hours had this been already? Fun. I mean, has this already been a couple hours that this whole thing had taken place at this point? This or? was around... All in, when I get to the end of the story, it's about... It's around four hours. I've been told four hours all wow. in. So it is... They just... They've been on far too long. It could have been cut short. So I then get told the Black Hawks were coming, but it'd be another hour. And I was kind of, I didn't, I didn't know if I could hold on, you know what I mean? But Mark kept on calling at us to um, keep us awake and stuff like that and keep us updating what was going on. And then somebody threw me a bottle of water and I failed to catch it and it landed beside me. Andy Barlow, he then stood up to get it and then he, he stood in a mine himself and he lost his left leg. That mine, again, further injured Mark. Again, blast his face and neck. And... Um, that then hit my right leg as well, so that was kind of, that was in a bad way also. So we then, um, it basically to wait for the um, Black Hawk to get there because medical supplies were just running low, obviously, because there's only so much they can do, the medic medics can yeah. do for us as such, you know what I mean? But then um, uh, Todd Cartley was basically, he was the only medic at this that time because Alec Craig was gone because he blast went to his chest. He had to get the way back to the top of Hill Normandy. And because we were all in three three separate areas, all within, you know, 50 yards of each other, you know what I mean, but maybe going 15, 20 yards. So Tug didn't really, was trying to keep an eye on us, but obviously it was a try, uh, there was a lot to keep under control because he'd actually taken a blast from the third mine, sort of the fourth mine, and he's and kind of damaged his little and, is, his and it's in his esophagus and his lungs at that point yeah it's one of his one of his lungs took, took a blast which apparently was it was better that the fact that he had his mouth open because he could kind of swallow sure. something whereas apparently if his mouth was closed it would maybe have imploded or something in him so but he was letting us know what was going on so this <clears> is your only point. medic at this point he's got three minds that's gone off He's got yeah. three guys that are down. You're spread out between 15 and 20 yards. There are already other mines within the area that you guys know for sure they're there because if there's already this many that's gone yeah. off. And, and he's trying to take care of you guys and got hit himself. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was, I mean, that was about it. But, but then to keep his... It turned out it was Dave Prosser. He'd been hitting the chest as well. Turned out it was his birthday. So um, Tug Hartley then got us all to start singing happy birthday to him. So we're all singing happy birthday. But it's <laughs> kinda it's kinda two two reasons. It's the it's the comical the comical value of it was obviously this this fucking excellent of that. <laughs> but he was also he could look around and see us all singing. So he knew yeah. that we were all still in the game. So there was no need for him to go try to go round to check us all because he knew he could look around, see our mouths open, shouting "Happy Birthday" and stuff. So he knew that. Um, brilliant. We look okay. Oh, that's brilliant! I never would have thought of that. <laughs> so eventually, the um, the Black Hawks came in. The first one came in for Stu Stu Hale, um, because he was he'd been there the longest. So they came down with a basket. The, well, the PJ came down. Uh, you know, one of the para rescue jumpers. Sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, down with a basket, strapped Stu in. And that then flew off, and the second one came in, picked up Mark, and that then flew off to um, the actual landing site to meet with the um, Chinook, because the Chinook actually had the, 
the mer on it, the medical emergency response team. So that had all the that was fitted out with all the kit and equipment for us. Right. Um, then one came back for me and got flown flown back to flown to meet the Chinook and I just looked beside me and I was just like, oh, fuck, fuck that is over. And then I looked beside me again and Mark seen Mark was there and then glanced again at him, see the see PJ PJ's rolling on top of him, give him CPR and oh. I couldn't understand what was what was going on because it wasn't I hadn't really registered in my mind that he was badly injured. It's and then I, I looked again and he, he was gone. I couldn't he was he wasn't there anymore. And number don't mean he'd actually he'd actually just died and they'd placed his um, body in a body bag. So we uh, pretty pretty much can't remember anything after that too. Sure. Um when I was back in back in Birmingham, there was little, little bits I did remember and stuff like that. Right. Did they put you yeah. on an automatic coma when you went back to Birmingham? I think it was an induced coma, yeah. It was basically because when my dad mum and dad came down, my dad asked them and asked the surgeon if I could be woken up when I was in intensive care, and he said, well, yes, we can, but it's just in and out of surgery that often um, that it would just totally confuse me if they were to wake me up and then put me back to, you know, so it was just, so they just, right. um, just me for the, just me for the, the time in the intensive care before I was, I think maybe my last operation, they just woke me up after that or something, not too sure. How many operations I mean, did you end up having? Men are drugsy, Fiji and stuff like that. Yeah, oh. it's all over the place, isn't it? So yeah. yeah. How many operations did you end up having there? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not too sure. I don't know. I mean, I know selling my. It was. It was touch and go whether they'd save my um, my right leg because I didn't realise that how bad a way that was in. The surgeon told my dad there was a ninety percent chance that ninety percent chance of going to have to amputate my right leg. So it was only until after I'd finished and. Uh, Sailor Oak Hospital that I found out what a bad way that was actually in and but I me mean, thanks to the the work they'd done on it and stuff like they they, they saved it you know what I mean so yeah it was great with that but I mean it's it's good and it's bad because it's it's good the fact that it's 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 shit for a leg but the way I see it is it's my shit leg you know what I mean so <laughs> right. um, so it's good for you know hopping about on my crutches and stuff like that it comes in handy but. But I mean, it's always the first part to get sore of me if I'm standing or walking about a lot. It's always my right ankle, my right leg that's sore, and that for an amputee that shouldn't be the way it should be. Normally, it's my lower back or my, you know, my my glutes. That that that's normally my hip. That's normally sore first, but it's always the right leg. So it's like, well, if it was chopped off, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that pain, and I'd be able to, I'd be able to have. Um, running blades and go out running whereas i don't because of the so it's yeah it's kind of things and roundabouts with you you know what i mean yeah i mean if it was if there was nothing up my left leg there was no prosthetic the left leg was fine and the right leg was the way it is i think it's i'd probably have the right leg off you know what i mean just to but because it's there and it's part of me i'd rather i'd rather, I'd rather keep it you know what i mean yeah so you end up staying another five years or so after that? Yeah, another yeah, another six years. I was um, I stayed there for yeah. Did you end up getting deployed again? No, I never know. Stu Stu Hale he um he deployed on the next Afghan tour in two thousand and eight, and he actually went back back to Kajaki itself and got back in the hilltop. And then you could see um our cut their um equipment had been cut off as like a webbing and it was still uh, there. Yeah, it was still actually down there and stuff like that. No. 
there was my rifle still down there and Stu's um, sniper rifle. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. But when it turned out, I found out later that what the, what the Russians had done for the hilltops, it's the, it's the highest features overlooking the Kajaki Dam, hence the reason why we had to have it, because uh, if the Taliban were to be in control of that, and the dam itself provides the um, electricity for around 75, 80% of Helmand province. And if that was to go, obviously um, the locals wouldn't be too happy about it. Um, was the Russians just basically flew their troops onto the top of the hills, Sparrowhawk East and West, Normandy and Athens. And then once they put the troops on top, they just flew around the hilltops and just threw out anti-personnel mines just randomly out. And... In the twenty through the twenty years, because of the um the the winter months and that when it's harsh rainfall, they just because of the rains it just migrated and it gathered all down yeah. into that one wadi. So certainly when the the RAF came in the next day to um, try and blow up the equipment uh, with bombs and thirty mil cannons, the guys were that had been there with us were watching it like that. Oh, that's where I was standing. The next day, you know, bum bum bum, little mines go off and like ah because the. the it could have, although it was a fucking bad day, by the sounds of it, the amount of mines that they've seen going off through the ordnance getting put out there, it, was, it, it could have been a lot worse. Well, the mere I mean? fact that you had three of them set off within a short period in such a close range like that yeah. automatically yeah. said there was a, you know, you were in a very bad spot, no doubt about mm. it. Mm. And, yeah, and you're yeah, right. How many, how many men did you end up having down there in total? Like about eight or ten? Yeah. I think there was there was twelve was twelve okay. was down there, but seven of us um got injured, including including Mike uh, Mark that obviously um passed away. So seven of you end up getting injured in total. So the mm. other ones were just from shrapnel. Uh yeah, three. Of, so Alex Tug and um, Dave Prosser they got the shrapnel wounds to their um to their chests, whereas me, Stu, and um Andy were the ones that uh, lost lost legs. Yeah. The fact that he went back over there and got to see that, did he did he say that that was somewhat healing in some ways to be able to go back? No, I wouldn't say he really talked about it. He just wanted to get there just to, well, for a, there was a first, there was a first amputee, uh, well, well, Afghan amputee to redeploy to him. As Afghanistan, there's somebody else went back to Iraq after losing a leg, but certainly the first Afghan um, veteran to go back. Yeah. So what did you end up doing primarily over those last six years? Well, put jobs in battalion that I wouldn't have wanted if I was able-bodied. You know, I was um, manager of the PRI, which is basically the, the regimental shop. So shop that sells all the T-shirts for the guys and stuff like that and everything else with the parachute regiment, cat badge on, and then went to uh, the motor transport platoon um, to get guys put on um, driving courses and such, and then... I finished up in the, um, the training wing, so booking different training areas for um, the companies when they were going out on um, exercises and and such. Yeah, so I was happy with how the army and uh, certainly the parachute regiment treated me after I got injured because I, I thought they were really good and looked after me. Yeah. Yeah. Now after that, I think I read somewhere where you continued jumping, though. Yeah. Well, Blesma, um we had a Blesma charity, Blesma British Limbless Sex Service Men's Association. I first got introduced to them when. The general secretary, um, Ernest Stables, he came and visited me in Sale Oak Hospital and said who he was. And I'd never heard of Lesma. Yeah. Uh, he said who they were, what they do, 
And um, I started going on uh, little kind of weeks here and there doing some adventure training tasks and stuff like that. And they got me, they got me skiing in, um, actually in Colorado. That, that was good. <laughs> really? And, um, and the, the monoskiing. Have you seen it, monoskiing? No, but I, I have heard of it, yeah. Yeah, so it got me doing that. Yeah. That was great. And then the back end of uh, 2011, I got a message to say they were setting up their skydiving team and that was one thing that I'd, oh, really? I'd said to myself. But before I get, well, once I was in Selly Oak, one of the things I said to me was, I'm going to get back up skydiving. So I'd done about 100 and 140 skydives before I got injured then. Even though in that period, I, I broke my, when I had my full left leg, I broke the left femur skydiving, but I got back up jumping um, about three or four years after that. So was it a uh, static line? You're talking static line jumps? No, no, free, free fall. Oh, free, free fall. fall okay. Yeah. Um, so Blesm were setting up their own team with that. So there was about eight of us went out to um, California to Atlantic Skydive. So that was 2012. So that was great. Um, and then on April Fool's Day 2013, <laughs> I then broke my remaining leg, my right leg. Um, so I got... <laughs> Um, operated on it to get metal work put in my tip, so wow, that, that wasn't great. I mean, I've I've got I had one leg to look after, and I couldn't even do that. You know <laughs> you what I mean? Do that. So. <laughs> uh, well, no wonder you're having so much pain in that leg. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Don't help myself there. No, not much. Uh, so, what have you been able to do other than you know doing the acting as an amputee and stuff to help out? What are are you able to do any type of mentoring to some of the guys that are having uh, to to go into well, the service? Um, Blesma uh, last year was setting up a kind of outdoor guest speaking type mm-hmm. course um, with a company in London, and they got us jobs to talk to schools about. I think it was three or four, the four schools we gave a talk to, kind of varying varying ages of the um, pupils from you know thirteen through to sixteen. Um, where I was able to talk about my experiences. I've just said there for 20 minutes or so and then um, join in in a um, discussion with them about helping out others and stuff like that and how we overcome adversity and stuff like that. So little workshops with that. And the, the, the responses you got from the schools was phenomenal for that. I bet. So well, they're setting up again for next year and they're hopefully going to invite us back to for more talks and stuff. So that should be... That should be good, yeah. Are you able to still hang out with some of your former soldiers and stuff that you serve with? Has that been helpful to you, you find? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, because I was doing some of the the casual simulation work for, at first, in like 2007, 2008, for 3-para on exercises and stuff. So I was mad. I was, when they'd finished with the medics, the medic would debrief them after they've finished treating us and stuff. I would then give them my input and how it felt from myself and I could then relate what they've done to me from experiences of what I felt in 2006 and that and say, right, what at this point, what you should have done should have been this because by doing that, that helped me, that helped relieve the pain and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a lot of things that I can give my advice. The medic will give his, but yeah, fantastic. But it is good when we can give our, our say about it because yeah, what what the what the medical kind of say, yes, that's correct. However, it is better by doing 
this or that, you know what I mean? So it's sure um, we can give the inputs, which which is which is invaluable anyway. That's what the the medics are happy enough for us to give them um, our input as to what it felt like. Well, the medical advances that's been made since the beginning mm. of this war is amazing, anyway. I know it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And, and the fact that you know you had such great medical care that they were able to save your leg, although to your point, it's not quite the way you had wanted it to be, but. <laughs> The fact that they were still able to save it and and uh, get you back home, I mean, that's that's amazing from that situation. I don't know how you made it out of there, to be honest. It's just, mm-hmm. it's an incredible story. And yeah, have you seen the movie, have you? Um, Kilo 2 Bravo. Yes, it's on, I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. So, so Kilo 2 Bravo, uh, and you can see it on Netflix. Yeah, that's right, Kilo 2 Bravo, yeah. It was, it was called initially um, Kajaki, the true story here, but... Um, but then I get told once it made its way to you guys in the states, it was getting it was a name change of Kilo Two Bravo. So I can ask the um, the associate producer Lucy why uh, the name changes. She said basically it's because U.S. distributors wanted to call it that because it's kind of more it's more military sounding. Kajaki just sounds like some foreign movie to be right. honest, doesn't it? Right, it does. So yeah, Kilo Two Bravo does sound more militaryish and kind of it stands out there, doesn't it? So, yeah. Which, after that, I, was, I thought actually it is a it's probably actually a better name for it than <laughs> which it I'm happy enough. But yeah, it's good. Did, did you have any input on the movie? Yeah, we all. Um, I mean, all of us were down there, and guys that were up on um, likes of uh, up in uh, hilltops. They gave their stories of how we saw it happened. Um, um, so they then uh, made up a, made up a script from our stories and sent the script round us all and. Guys weren't happy with bits and bobs, so they asked for it to get changed. So uh, there was about two and four, maybe about three or four um, different copies of the script before they finally um, nailed one as such. And they um, then said that there was director, he was wrecking areas uh, like in Jordan to potentially film it, and then found an area. We get sent the um, photographs of the area, and it was just like, wow, that's... <laughs> That may as well be there again. It was as accurate as they could get it without actually reliving the event, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, then we got to meet the actors that were playing us. We got to meet each of them and just got fed questions every um, all night from the uh, Scott that was playing me. So he was in the pub till about six in the morning just discussing bits about the script and film and stuff like that. And they were on a kind of a mini boot camp as well where... They had three ex um, uh, parachute regiment soldiers were taking them on the boot camp, so they were getting a good, they were getting a good beasting with that, and just getting taught a little bit about um, the regiment and um, uh, the charity help for heroes, yeah, um, stuff like that. So they had, a, they had a good time before they actually went out to Jordan and filmed it. That was for about about five weeks. It was filmed in Jordan. Jordan, okay. Yeah, so it was five weeks there. Actually, the 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 Prince of Jordan, he actually. Flies one of the helicopters that's in the, oh. uh, it's in the movie. Yeah, yeah, he loves it. Yeah. And they were apparently the Jordanian army were brilliant. They were, they were, they made, they were the ones that made the little um, the camp. Yeah, the, camp, the guys that was on set, they provided all the transport for them and that. Just helped them out whatever way they did, whatever way they wanted. They were fantastic. You know, you're now reaching out and helping other veterans and helping in the way you even are with active duty military and with first responders and stuff with the, mm-hmm. I, I think that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, Stu, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you, brother. And uh, wish you all the best. Awesome. Thank you. Cheers, Robert. Have a happy holidays. Cheers, Andrea. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.